Hey there, Bramblings. It's your Uncle Luke here. story series that I'm doing and honestly I'm just stunned that I'm following through with telling my story as uh, talking about my upbringing in the Irish dance world is probably one of the most vulnerable things I could ever do. I know that Irish dance has done so many incredible things for me in my life but is also deeply messed me up and to talk about it on this podcast is super brave as I know that the Irish dance world has hurt me a lot and I know how vicious the Irish dance world can be. So, you know, I'm putting my neck out there and I'm telling my story simply because I don't want anyone else to ever have to go through what I went through. And I know that protecting people from pain is inevitable and it's bound to happen. But I wonder how many people suffer in silence because no one has the bravery to speak out. And so here I am telling my story, and today I'm hoping to dive into the topic of body dysmorphia. Now, when I was researching and diving deep into myself about how to tell this story, I found myself stuttering, stumbling, procrastinating, avoiding, resisting with every ounce of my being. I realized that I have so many protective shields and so much armor around my heart when it comes to this topic that doing it alone was nearly impossible. And so I figured that I needed someone to hold my hand through this. I needed some help. I know that connection is one of the most powerful things that us humans can do. And if connection is one of my deepest values, then I needed to be able to trust in the power of connection. And so there was one day where my old Irish dance friend, Alexandra Fuller, she posted something on her blog called The Middle, and it was titled The Skin I'm In. And I decided to read what she had written and I realized that Alexandra gets it. She gets some sort of context or color that I've been suffering with. She gets it. And I just knew deep down that I needed to have her as the one that I connect with when talking about this topic. Now, Alexandra Fuller, like I said, she is a former competitive Irish dancer, just like me, and we did dance in the same dance school for a little bit. Alexandra is also a licensed counselor, and uh, I just, you know when the porridge is not too hot or not too cold, but just right, like, I just knew that she was just the right guest to bring on, 
And so with that being said, I just want to say thank you, Alexandra, for agreeing to pop onto the podcast and for holding my hand through some of the most vulnerable and personal stories that I was hoping to share. And um, it definitely made this conversation one of the most meaningful conversations I've ever had. So thank you so much. With all that being said, I do just want to have a little warning before we dive in that we are going to be talking about bodies. And for a lot of people, that's an incredibly sensitive topic. Also, we are going to be talking about abuse, and that is an extremely sensitive topic. Please use your own limits and boundaries when listening to this conversation. Take breaks if you need to. No one needs to be traumatizing themselves just to listen to some guy's Irish dance story. So without any further ado, let's just dive into this conversation and I'll see you on the other side. It is so good to see you. How are you doing today? Yeah. I am doing well, thank you. I'm happy to be here, and it's good to see you also. We were just talking about it's been been a while, actually, since we've connected, so this is kind of a fun excuse to to reconnect. Yes, it's yeah. been, um, what was it, about 10 years now? Yeah, to, to use your words, you said a small child ago. <laughs> it's the last time we saw each other. That's right, I did <laughs> say that. Which is so weird. Yeah. My gosh. Yeah. I, um, I just want to begin by saying thank you so much for agreeing to come along this journey with me. Um, mm-hmm. As I have been telling a bit more about my Irish dance story and creating this little podcast series, I kind of started it out as really determined on making it like a solo series and like writing out my stories and like mm-hmm. recording them and uh, just making it like me and the listener. However, as I start uh, stepping closer and closer towards this topic, mm-hmm. I realize just how much I'm like slicing myself open and showing people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I really want to follow through with this journey. I just realize that stepping closer towards this topic, I feel myself stumble and fall and Mm. doubt myself and I'm feeling all these old injuries emotional injuries Mm. yeah crippling me a little bit and I realized that I need someone there with me I need someone to like Mm. hold my hand through it and Mm -hmm. after reading your blog um called the skin I'm in was that what it's called I think I think Um, so yeah I just felt this like I don't know I didn't know what it was at the time when I Mm -hmm. first read your blog I just, uh, I knew that there's, oh, here's someone who understands. Here's someone who's mm-hmm. seen my story. Here's yeah. someone who has walked a similar journey. And mm-hmm. I had this uh, feeling come over me of like, what if she just came on the podcast and did it with me? Mm-hmm. And then I had those thoughts of like, oh no, she's too busy. She's, no, no <laughs> she would never do that. No, 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 no. And then I thought, well, what if it works out? 
Yeah. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. And I love that. And even I remember your response to that post being so encouraging to me, um, just because um, especially if you put writing out that's not on like social media, it's not like it's not as ingrained in people to respond. So there's not as much of that like that was good. Maybe you feel that with podcasting, like you put it out there and you're like, there's no like button on Spotify really of like, liked this one, you know? Um, and so you're like, okay, did that land? And so you, your response to that was really encouraging. And I'm so glad it resonated and I'm glad it led to us being here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Like from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, with that being said, like I start off all of my, um, my Irish dance story podcasts, mm-hmm. I like to just start off with my intentions. I just want to be telling my story in order to heal myself. Mm-hmm. I want to validate and inform and give language to any emotions or experiences that someone might be going through when in a highly competitive sport or dance, like mm-hmm. Irish dance. Yeah. Um, I want to lead with some curiosity in hopes to challenge maybe some views or beliefs that could affect a future dancer or athlete. My values with this are compassion, connection, and bravery when telling mm-hmm. my story. And um, I definitely want to be trying to not use any names as best as I can. And I really just want to be focusing on my experience. And I'd also really love to hear some of your experience as well. Also, I just want to say that like uh, a lot of the uh, books that I've been using for my trauma stewardship right now has been um, Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, (laughs) as well as The Gifts of Imperfection. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I'm not a counselor, but you are and uh with that being said i would just like to uh let the floor be yours and if there's any boundaries or Mm -hmm. anything you'd like to express before we get going yeah yeah for sure and i guess the 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 main thing is that yeah i am a therapist and a counselor and so that means i i do have expertise in some areas but not all and the reason i say that is just sometimes there can be when when i have a title like i have this this degree this profession the things I say can be taken with extra weight sometimes when it has to do with mental health. And that's both like, that's a meaningful thing, but that also means that I could, I could say something wrong or I could be incorrect or the, the field is ever evolving. So just kind of a note to the, the listener and to you that like, I am not here as a therapist. I am here as myself, who is also a therapist, and has that background. And I'm not by any means an expert, because it's really impossible to be an expert in human functioning. Um, Because we are so complex, and there's so many different things at play. So I think that's just the main thing It's just kind of holding what I say lightly and taking what works for you. Mm -hmm. uh, And and leaving what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you. And uh, so with that being said, I was just curious, would you be down to maybe tell me a little bit about your story? Mm hmm. Yeah. In what regards? Just yeah. Uh, anything specific? Honestly, the floor is yours. I kind of like to give the guest the option of choosing where they'd like to start, what mm. stories they'd like to share. Yeah. I know that our conversation today is pertaining towards Irish dance. So if maybe mm-hmm. you, you want to tell a story in that regards, yeah. just, you know, who's Alexandra Fuller? And yeah, yeah. And, why why is she okay. here yeah. i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah no that's great um yeah and it's so funny because just talking about irish dancing because when you say who is alexandra fuller for about 11 years of my life irish dancing was was me mm-hmm. there was a really close 
over-identification, which I think you talked about in one of your episodes with the sport. And it's so funny now that I meet people who know me and love me. And some of my closest friends are people who have never seen me in my dance shoes. And that's so bizarre. (laughs) But um, that being said, I will share, I'll share a specific story, maybe actually from Irish dancing that was really, really significant to me. And so this was um, when I was in grade three, I saw Riverdance, as most 90s children saw, saw it on TV one day at my grandma's and just became enamored and obsessed with this and wanted to be an Irish dancer. But I grew up in a really complex family. It was really hard to, I mean, we didn't have the internet, we might have had the internet, but like you didn't look up like Irish dance schools near me, like Think, I remember going through the phone book being like, here are some names, but uh, my family life was just really busy and overwhelming. So it took a long time and it took actually until I was in grade six that we found a school. And so I found a school in grade six. So I'm like 11 years old. Joy and Irish dancing, love it. Obsessed with it. Just think it's the best. And I remember my first dance competition. And up until then, I had been a very, very insecure, just kind of awkward kid. I never, we never did any like extracurriculars or anything. So I never really had any sense of self-efficacy, this sense of like, I can do things, like I'm actually capable. And at my first dance competition, I remember being so nervous, just riddled with nerves um, and going out and doing my four dances. And Irish dancing is kind of weird, I guess, in that when you're in the, the, the grades or like the lower levels, most of your results are just posted on a wall, as you know, Luke, I'm kind of explaining to our listener, like that you go after a while and you're like, okay, they, they put the results up, I can, I can see. And I remember my mom coming to get me and saying, come, like, come see. And I was like, okay, I was so nervous. I went to the wall and I looked up and I saw for one dance, I got third, which was good. But then the other three, I got first. And I remember the first time in my life, and this is like such a marked moment for me, I remember thinking I could be good at something. Like I had this moment of like, I I could be good at something. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Like I hadn't known that previously that I could achieve or be accomplished or have talent in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a very marked moment for me. And even though dance did bring up a lot of hard stuff as well over those 11 years and I even still have like an Achilles issue because of it that I think that like changed the trajectory of my life because up until then I had no I had no belief that I could be good at anything so that's part of how I'm here today wow yeah oh I got shivers when you said you got three firsts there I was like (gasps) like I love that that's Mm -hmm. it's a really special moment yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I love how you framed it as maybe I can be good at something yeah wow I really resonate with that mm-hmm. that's such a powerful question anyone could ask themselves especially when the awards are kind of validating this experience of like yeah, yeah I got first I got mm-hmm. first look at yeah that. yeah absolutely it's this external validation mm-hmm. that I didn't know I needed and I'm so glad I got, and then I had plenty of experiences in dance where that validation did not exist. <laughs> but um, but that one in particular was really meaningful. I'm just curious, and I hope it's okay to ask, but mm-hmm. now you are uh, a counselor, and I'm just curious, like, how did you get into this uh, field? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wish I had a good answer for that. 
And a lot of it is actually a kind of similar parallel here. I haven't actually made this connection, but when I was in university, I just, I knew I was really interested in human functioning. I just mm. thought psychology was so interesting. And so I was doing an undergrad in psych and I was like, well, I'm not going to go anywhere with it. Like, I'm not, there's no way I can go to grad school. Like, I'm not smart enough. Like, I I don't have money. Like, I, I don't come from money. Like, I, I don't have the capacity to pay for this. Like, there's no way. It's just, like, not in the cards. And then I had a professor who, actually, I think, what had happened? I think we had had, like, a pop quiz or something in our class. Mm-hmm. And I was answered the questions or whatever. And then I was her research assistant and I was in the research lab and she came marching in. She was this really like intense woman. She does not give praise. (laughs) And she just looked at me and she was like, you're smart and you need to start acting like it. You need to start trusting yourself. And I was like, excuse me, (laughs) ma'am. But that again, speaking of like kind of parallel to this Irish dance moment of like, oh, I could be good at something. I suddenly had the thought of like, oh, I could go to grad school. Mm. Like I'm, I'm not incapable. And so there, that kind of shifted. And I just, I knew I wanted to do a master's in counseling. I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a therapist. I just felt this kind of like, it's hard to explain like an internal knowing of like, I'm supposed to go in this direction. And all along, I've had a sense that it it wouldn't be everything, that I would do something else alongside of it. Right now that looks like writing or thinking about writing and not getting around to it. (laughs) Um, But I, I think yeah, as time goes on, I'll add some other aspects in. But yeah, that's kind of how I ended up. I just knew that I had to, and mm-hmm. it worked out. And then now I do it, and I love what I do. It has its hard days, but it is so meaningful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that. However, something's kind of coming up for me, and I don't know if this is mm-hmm. like out of left field, or maybe that does make yep. sense, but... I was um, watching a little bit of Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. that show. Um, I've seen the first two seasons. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's just this one scene where Ted comes home and his mom is cooking a dinner or something. And his mom has apparently been avoiding a serious conversation for a long time with him. And mm-hmm. what comes out of Ted is like a lot of like, thank you for all of this that you've done with my life. And fuck you for not mm. do, being there for me. And mm. he just went on this yeah. rant of like, thank you and fuck you. Huh, yeah. And I guess what's coming up for me right now is like, Irish dance for me is very much thank you, but mm. fuck you. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, it's, it's a dialectic of, you know, it has done so much amazing things in my life. But it has also crippled me down to my knees. Yeah. At the exact same yeah. time. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and it makes me, when you say that, it makes me think of like when I work with people who are leaving abusive relationships, mm-hmm. what is often so complicated about it is that there is real love and there's mm-hmm. good memories and there is there is all this positivity intermingled. Like so often we think something has to be all bad mm-hmm. or all good. And it's not like Irish dancing for me has changed so much in the trajectory of my life. And yet also like some very lasting negative impacts or, um, or even like, yeah, just like the, the identity shift after quitting or retiring is, 
huge. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And just, it's one of those things that is layered. And so I, yeah, I resonate with what you're saying, this idea of like, this has done so much and also harmed me in some ways yes. that are really significant. Just recently, I watched the movie um, Whiplash, which is mm-hmm. a really incredible movie, but it's definitely a movie that people need to be uh, cautious when watching. Mm-hmm. But the thing that keeps coming up when I think about it is when abuse is celebrated as success, that's where mm-hmm. the devil breeds or like that's where the Ooh, devil does his work. Yeah. Yeah. I really do think that, you know, Irish dance is just another example of when abusers come into a position of power mm-hmm. and they're not getting checked. Mm-hmm. And their abuse leads to success. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if it gives them justification to continue their abuse. Yeah. And it's just so goddamn complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so complex. And then even too, like, this might not make sense and it might be not necessarily related to what you're saying, but even in, in those contexts too, that sometimes people who are abusive, like genuinely don't know they're abusive or like the the act we we as humans are so good at self-deceit like this Mm -hmm. the sense of being like oh no like this is fine or even if you think about like I don't know I I I longed for a dance teacher who would just scream at me that is what I wanted I wanted the dance teacher who would yell at me chase me around with a broom you know all of all of the things that we kind of joke about and laugh about in Irish dancing that are so funny that are actually like oh hold on that's kind of significant Mm -hmm. And is that actually the best environment for a kid? And like, yeah, this even a few years ago, I started seeing some posts about like high level sport and the way that coaches are and this kind of aggressive way of teaching mm-hmm. um, that is actually like could be called abusive. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, it's extra complicated because people don't know that because it's so entrenched in the culture. And yeah, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, it absolutely does yeah. make sense. And I think at the same time, it's us who are choosing the journey of Irish dance. And it's us who are choosing the journey of trying to become great. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we chose this mentor. And it's almost like there's this implicit contract that mm-hmm. they are going to try their absolute best to get yeah. you, the student, to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And so where's that line of motivation, inspiration versus abuse? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's yeah. why it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and that's where like, again, when you talk about people being in a position of power to be a coach or teacher, you are a person who is in power over young, impressionable people. And part of the duty then is to to, to have a sense of of self-awareness and knowing why you're doing what you're doing and and yeah to to you have a duty to to operate with the the most integrity possible mm-hmm. and i think that is something that maybe isn't necessarily a part of dance culture because it's all about the dancing and the winning and whatever as opposed to the like hold on how do you actually like have healthy relationships because even too coaching is like one of the only <laughs> environments where you have such unmitigated access to young people in in so many different ways you're like dealing with their bodies you're touching them you're you know you're pushing them past their limits you're yelling at them and then you're also like there when they're having a hard time with their friends and their parents are pissing them off and like like you're in a very influential place that holds a lot of power which means you can do a lot of good but also means you can do a lot of harm Mm -hmm. 
Wow. And with that said, I guess uh, maybe we could dive into this topic um, that I was hoping to talk about. Yeah. And um, that's body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. Now, for the longest time, I've had this sneaking suspicion that I've been suffering with it. And I know that I can't self-diagnose per se, but Mm -hmm. based off of all these details and little tidbits of information that I've been fed about Mm -hmm. body dysmorphia, I just feel as though I see myself in this. Yeah. I was just curious, do you know any information or any details about body dysmorphia that maybe you could share with me? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this is one of those things that I will, where I will like say, like, this is not my expertise as a therapist. I do a lot of work in what is called the embodiment or our relationship with our bodies, but body dysmorphia as like a psychiatric disorder is not my area. But from, from my understanding that currently body dysmorphic disorder is a psychiatric disorder that is listed in what's called the DSM-5, which is the fifth edition. And the DSM is a book that psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors use to diagnose mental health issues. And it's really marked by this like kind of persistent obsession with the body and specifically flaws in the body. Mm-hmm. And often these are flaws that are not necessarily noticeable to other people. Um, so it can be something like a scar or like the way the earlobe sits, you're just noticing that like one eye is like slightly like lower or more hooded than the other eye. <clears throat> um, things that, yeah, people don't notice, but that you see as huge mm. and these like big issues. And sometimes people will even go to like great lengths and harm themselves trying to perform surgery on themselves. A lot of people will get a lot of plastic surgery and it'll be this kind of obsessive need to fix these these perceived problems. And part of the diagnostic criteria, which is part of criteria for actually a lot of disorders, is that it has to negatively impact your life in a significant way, mm-hmm. um, meaning that it's like hindering your ability to work, to function, etc. I will say as well that it's an interesting disorder for me because of the... The, the way in which I think so many of us can see ourselves in it and how it's kind of like at what point is it negative body image and at what point is it body dysmorphia, which is fair. But I think something that tends to happen with uh, mental health terminology is that there can be a specific disorder with criteria, et cetera. But then, then the term also then becomes synonymous with the rest of our experience because body dysmorphia, for sure, the sense of like not being able to see your body clearly and understand it and like feel like it's flawed mm-hmm. um, is very human. So similar with like OCD, right? So OCD clinical disorder, but then someone might be like, oh, I'm a perfectionist and everything needs to be in a straight line. So I have OCD. Like, well, mm-hmm. They're using like OCD as like a verb or like a way of understanding, but it's not necessarily the clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, like I said, this isn't my area and I couldn't diagnose you. So as we talk, I'll probably be leaning a bit more in terms of body dysmorphia as like a general experience. Okay. And I have I have another thought that I would like to share. And yes, please. I think that any sort of diagnosis or label is is useful only in as much as it's empowering, and that mm-hmm. it provides language and understanding. Which it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you that body dysmorphia that term has helped you sense yourself, see yourself kind of put yourself in context a little bit. Um, Part of what I don't love about it, mainly with this one in particular, is that it makes it sound like the problem is you, that you have body dysmorphic disorder and not that you live in a society that prizes certain bodies above others and that you live in a society that 
thinks you need to be thin and jacked and, um, you know, energetic all the time and just able to do things and like really sexually powerful and whatever. And so part of me is like, well, society is what I think actually has the disorder for most of us. Some of us for sure have body dysmorphic disorder, but I would say that like for those of us experiencing body dysmorphia or negative body image issues, it's society that's sick, not you. So I think that's, yeah, that's important for me to say. Holy shit. Okay, well, I guess I'm completely flipped on my head now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, thank you. I'm just like, wow. I think uh, I need a minute for that. Wow. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. Well, what's coming up for you as I say that? Yeah, well, what's coming up is just a lot of gratitude in mentioning the empowerment of labels, that mm -hmm. labels are something that we give ourselves, that mm -hmm. we can pour ourselves into mm -hmm. and make us feel as though we're not alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I really do feel as though, yeah, this body dysmorphia feeling or these experiences that I'm mm -hmm. getting, the label does kind of feel as though it's something I can pour myself into and I feel like I can better understand Mm -hmm. um some things however what i really love what you're saying is i i didn't even think there was words to describe this experience but i really do feel as though body dysmorphia was kind of just thrust on me mm -hmm. and it was never something that felt natural it was never something that yeah. i grew into or something that just happens it was something that someone else told me mm -hmm. yeah why i'm not enough yeah. My God. I'm just curious, like, I'm going to definitely be getting into my story, but mm -hmm. is there, has there been any experiences that maybe Irish dance maybe kind of thrust this idea on you mm -hmm. that happened in your life? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, on a few levels, like just the general, like, for me, I was always taller than a lot of my dance friends. And I, I've always been like a medium person I guess but I had this feeling that I was so much bigger than all these people I was dancing with because they were all short and slim and wonderful lovely people but just had different bodies from me mm -hmm. and so I often had this sense of like I just I'll never look like them or be like them or dance like them um so there's like that piece and then there's the piece of the well-meaning where I would have influential people in my dance community comment on my body when it started changing and losing weight and kind of thinning out and just this sense of like oh wow like look at you look at what have you done like just all this attention mm -hmm. that so well-meaning and comes from the culture that people that we live in that we're steeped in right we were steeped to believe that all weight loss is like good weight loss mm -hmm. um wow hold on wait say that one more time uh, what did i even say that we're steeped to believe that all weight loss is good weight loss <laughs> shit okay sorry keep going <laughs> well and the thing is like it's not and also it was just like natural like I was getting older I was growing my body was just shifting and and so I, I understand where these like dance moms or teachers or people were coming from but at the same time it created the sense of like this is the thing that's good about me which then when I quit dance and that changed then it was like I lost the good thing I lost the good thing because I've never I never particularly felt like I was pretty 
but the thing I had going for me was that I had a flat stomach. Like, what a what a win. Um, and so having that change felt so like, oh no, like I've I've lost all that was good. So there's that piece. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the part of we'll see if I can explain this well, but when you're doing any sort of physical performance, the the piece that is constantly being evaluated is your body. Mm-hmm. And it is your body that is either failing in that moment or is doing well. Mm-hmm. And so the the results when your body doesn't perform properly, quote unquote properly, like how it should or how you want it to, is shame. Yeah. Because in dance culture and like the fitness world, there's this really like pervasive sense of you can put your mind to anything, so you should be able to keep pushing yourself and keep going, and your feet are bleeding and your skin is being ripped off, but you should be able to keep going. And you're taught to actually ignore your body's cues. You're taught that if your body can't continue, that you are actually bad. Yes. Or even in terms of like technique, right? Like I, I'm built differently than someone who is super leggy with super pointed toes and I don't know, just the natural things that make dance, the, the natural qualities that dancers tend to have. And so there'd be this like shame that I can't turn my feet out or, you know, I, I'm, my heels are hurting and my Achilles hurts mm-hmm. to this day. Oh, God. <laughs> <Still> hurts. <laughs> um, and then my, my arms are moving and they're not supposed to the sense of like, I, it, it, it becomes so closely tied to my body is bad and therefore I am bad, which is shame. Cause shame is that feeling of, I am somehow bad on like a moral level. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's a bit of word vomit there, but. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the the book Atlas of the Heart describes shame as the intensely painful feeling we get when we feel as though uh, we're unworthy of love, belonging, or connection. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting to me that in dance, that being worthy of like connection is somehow tied to winning or being good. And I don't even know if that was like explicit or like intended, but just thinking like, I don't know, something that came up for me as I was listening to your other Irish dance episodes Mm -hmm. was just thinking like, man, I wasted so much time in shame with dance because you know, I like I said in the beginning, I had this, I won my first few dance competitions, but I wasn't oozing with natural talent. I I worked really hard and yet I never, you know, I never made it to worlds. I never won a competition at the highest level. Like I never recalled at nationals, like all of these things that at the time I was like, I will die before I quit dance and not go to worlds. Like it was so important to me and I spent all this time even feeling ashamed or like embarrassed that my competitors were looking at me and seeing me not be good enough and when I think about it now I'm like one these people wouldn't even be able to pick me out of a lineup on a street probably some of them might their dance world you know you would talk and build friendships but like no one cares nor do I care (laughs) that I didn't but at the time there was this shame of like why would I do something and not be good at it yes Yes, almost as if um, it was life or death. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and in a weird way, it felt that way. Holy crap! Ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, I'm just gonna take another breath. Mm-hmm. Now, in your in your blog, the skin I'm in, mm-hmm. what you were saying there is, my body was not a part of me I felt connected to. 
It was something to control and master. And I never could win the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we were just talking a little bit about that. And yeah, that really resonated with me. I think the moment I read that sentence, I actually had to like put my phone down mm. and like take a walk outside. Wow. And like, I was like, she gets it. Oh, she gets it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It hurt. <laughs> it yeah. Hurt. Oh, yeah. Like a ouch her right. good like that 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 I'm seen and someone understands but shit yeah well I think the, yeah. the therapist in Ted Lasso says it best where it's like I'm here to help you move through things but at first you're going to be pissed off with me <laughs> yeah yeah that's it that's good <laughs> right so yeah uh, it, that really articulates just a lot of a lot of where this dysmorphia I think stems from me mm-hmm. and I I hope it's okay but I would, I was hoping to share a bit of my mm-hmm. story, a bit of the origins of where I think this dysmorphia came from. Yeah, I would love that. Um, bah, 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 bah. For like 20 years now, I have always felt like it's been me versus my body. Mm. That the only path to success in the fields that matter to me is when I'm skinny, muscular, or have like minimal body mm. hair. Yeah. I felt like I would naturally sabotage myself when I knew that I didn't look attractive enough for my own goals. Mm. And still to this day, looking in the mirror is really tough for me. Mm. So in in the part one of the uh, My Irish Dance Stories uh, series, I talk a little bit about a former dance teacher of mine who mm-hmm. would use shame tactics as a way to like motivate and inspire her students. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned that when I was younger, I saw Irish dance as a form of play. Mm-hmm. Which I loved that, by the way, not to interrupt you, but but as oh. you talked about that, I was like, oh yeah, how beautiful. Like just, just such innocent joy and fun in that. Yeah, Exactly, right? Th- that's all it really was. It was like <laughs> doing this thing that I saw on a VCR tape um, yeah. and this thing that was just in my family, this thing that was just always surrounded me uh in my Mm -hmm. upbringing like it was play it was just purposeless activity Mm -hmm. essentially yeah i i talked about how this teacher was actively trying to reframe my mindset around how irish dance shouldn't be a form of play but rather be a form of like winning and success Mm -hmm. and and work right Mm -hmm. now i think the main reason why my former teacher was extremely adamant on reframing my mindset is best explained in the books in the book called The Gifts of Imperfection. I think it was around page 100 where it says, in today's culture where our self-worth is tied to our net worth and we base our worthiness on our level of productivity, spending time on purposeless activities is rare. We convince ourselves that playing is a waste of precious time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I think in her mind, when I win, she would also win. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think this yeah. is even reflected in the Irish dance culture um, during award ceremonies. Right. Yeah, where absolutely. Dance schools were often named after the last name of the teacher. And when a student or a dancer would win, it would be like in first place, we have Luke Benoit from insert last name here, dance school. Right. And so, yeah, 
you know, the more first placements her students would get, the more first placements she would also get to make her feel more worthy, probably as a dancer or a teacher, right? Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm even just thinking about like, yeah, I think Irish dancing specifically, but I mean, granted, it's the area that I know, but you are, it's so closely tied with your teacher. And you would know like the Irish dance world has like these celebrity teachers that you know you say the name of or you see at a dance competition and you're like oh that's you know that's so and so and so there is this like clout to be one the sense of efficacy and the sense of I'm achieving something and even actually as I'm talking out loud right now I'm thinking about how when we talk about how what was the point of for me at least like what was the point of dancing if I wasn't winning Mm -hmm. and if I wasn't the best I feel like there's this kind of culture in Irish dancing as well that is for the dance school. Like if you're just a dance school that is not winning at the competitions and that is not sending a bunch of dancers to worlds or is not the cream of the crop, then what's the point? Like how embarrassing that you do this for fun Mm -hmm. and just, you know, don't try to be the absolute best. So that's an interesting parallel that I hadn't actually thought about. No, you're right. Yeah. And it's just making me think again about when abuse is celebrated as success. Yeah. That's yeah. where the devil really does his best work, right? Mm-hmm. In in The Gifts of Imperfection, they talk about Dr. Stuart Brown, who is the founder of the National Institute of Play. And he says that the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. Mm. Respecting our biologically programmed need for play can transform work. It can bring back excitement and newness to our job. So what I think I'm trying to get at is that, you know, if Maya Angelou was correct in that hurt people hurt people, then I can only imagine that shamed people shame people, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I, I think that my former dance teacher must have continuously felt the shame of not being good enough or productive enough. Mm. Yeah. I even remember her saying in front of the whole class when one day at a fesh, which to those who don't know, a fesh is just the Gaelic word for festival or competition. At a fesh, you are no longer your parents' child. Mm. You are my little dancer. Mm. Yeah. And the implications of that was I'm allowed to talk to you however I want. I'm allowed mm-hmm. to treat you however I want. And taking a step back and reflecting on it like holy crap she gave herself yeah. an excuse to abuse us mm. now i remember one day at dance class when i was about 10 or 11 my teacher decided to gather everyone in a circle and she wanted to ask us where our own gauges were when it came to our own self-improvement mm. she asked all of us to take a moment to think about two or three things that we wanted to improve improve on She then got us to share one by one what those improvements were. She would point to a student and just ask, what do you need to work on? And everyone's responses were quite typical, you know, like turnout, stamina, my second step of my treble jig, or, you know, the turn Mm -hmm. at the end of my reel, you know, like typical things, right? But when it came to me, I remember just feeling this energy shift. Mm. Her approach went from you what do you need to work on too and how about you luke what do you think you really need to work on it was almost as if like the the whole meeting was actually just this facade and her main goal was to actually just corner and humiliate me i remember telling her turn out my third step in my hornpipe and 
some more height in my reel or I like actually I don't even yeah. really remember but yeah I then remember her saying well that's not what I was thinking of and then like she scoffed hmm. and then she said keep thinking Luke what else do you really need to work on wow I then remember just feeling terrified I'm looking at my teacher's face who which is looking very disappointed and angry as well as all the faces of my fellow dancers and hmm. I'm seeing impatience eye rolls, frustration, concern, almost as if they're saying, without saying, how could you not know? Mm. And in my fear, I remember stuttering out, I, I don't know. Mm. My teacher then snapped at me saying, how about I give you a hint? It starts with an E. Mm. She then looked around at all my other classmates and asked, do you know what I'm thinking? And a lot of them replied in some way that just implied that they knew mm. at this point i remember feeling the tears starting to well up in my eyes and i remember just feeling helpless and confused and even more terrified i remember saying the first word that came to my mind which was enthusiasm <laughs> she then scoffed again and sardonically she said do you need to work on your enthusiasm at this point my mind has completely shut off I've entered mm -hmm. the free state completely. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you're completely shutting down. Yeah, I was completely yeah. shut down. And I don't even think I said anything after that. I then remember her looking around the class and said, well, it looks like you need some help. Come on, everyone. If you know it, say it with me. Three, two, one. And then everyone in the class just said, energy, all at once. Mm -hmm. I remember in that moment feeling like the whole world had crashed down on me. Mm. In my shock, I just remember saying, oh, oh is right, Luke, she snapped back. And then I stuttered out, like in, as in stamina, like getting through my steps better. To which she replied, no, you're okay with that. You just drag your butt when you dance, Luke. You don't dance with enough energy. Mm. What? I remember saying to myself in devastation, and then she said, bottom line is, Luke, you need to lose about 15 to 20 more pounds. I remember then looking at my classmates and then seeing them nod their heads in agreement. Mm. And then my teacher asking me, how many carbs do you eat in a day, Luke? Oh, my gosh. I remember saying, like, I don't know, like 12. I, I don't count. She and then she 12. like. I don't know. I'm ten. Yeah, 11, no, fair right? enough. Oh gosh. She then looked at me almost as if I committed some sort of blasphemous crime, and she's like, "You don't count your carbs. How could you not count your carbs?" Wait, this was when you were ten or eleven. Yes. She then pointed at another student and said, "Hold on, note note for the audio. My jaw is just fully extended to the ground. Anyway, continue." <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, she then pointed to another student. She said, how many carbs do you eat? To which they said like, oh, like three or four. Good, that's a good number, she says. She counts her carbs, Luke. Why don't you? Don't you care about your success? This is when my tears started falling. And yeah, here I actually write, reminder, I'm only 10 or 11. Yeah. I think what made this so painful was that apparently everyone in my class knew that I what I needed to work on. 
almost as if everyone knew that this confrontation was going to happen. And I felt like I was the black sheep of the group that I didn't belong. And I felt so incredibly self-conscious. Yeah. I had no idea I was overweight until that confrontation. Wow. And to learn that everyone in my class had thought the same thing made me feel like I was the punchline of their jokes and that they would talk about me behind my back. Oh, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And as you tell me that story right now, what are you like? How are you feeling having shared it? It's not a new story that I've shared, mm -hmm. but it's still so raw. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm 30 now. Yeah. Like it has been so many years. But at the same time, I feel like I bring myself right back into that situation where I am just yeah. this helpless little 10 year old boy yeah. who had no idea he was overweight, who had all of his classmates somehow in on the joke. Mm -hmm. And yeah, from that day forward, that's when my relationship with my reflection in the mirror started to turn yeah. south. Wow. Yeah. And that was when I really started to notice that there's some truth in it too, though. Mm. And I think that's what hurts even more is that, mm. at least in my perspective, the boys who would win competitions did not look like me. Mm. They had the flat stomach, they had the uh, perfect skin, they had the, uh, yeah. you know, all, all of these aspects that when I reflect on it, are aspects of a body that are almost unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's just been brutal. Yeah. And I have, I've been really struggling to try to find some sort of balance, some sort of understanding a cure. Yeah. I don't know if there is a cure to this, but yeah, I've just been desperate for some sort of relief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's been such a long time. And, and even as, as you were sharing that story, I didn't realize you were that young because I remember, I remember comments being made about your body when I was around you. And so as you were telling that story, I was like, oh my God, was I there yelling energy? Like, was that me? Mm -hmm. But, but just remembering that, like, so that wasn't something that, stopped like that was something that I remember being continued this like if you lose this much weight if you lose 10 pounds 15 pounds then you'll start winning mm -hmm. and the sense of you just need to do it and it should be so easy and then I imagine the the follow-up feeling that happens is just so much shame yeah. because you're supposed to be able to do this and yet you can't for whatever reason yeah and so then shame Yes. And then, you know, you end up in this cycle um, of feeling perpetually not good enough. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, that's really validating to hear you say that, because, yeah, what comes up as well is, you know, having had told this story to future dance teachers that I go to, mm -hmm. and even though there was a promise that they would never perpetuate this shame, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it still happened. Yeah it still was talked about, it was still mentioned, and it was still mm -hmm. treated as if it was the only thing holding me back. Yeah. 
And the, if I can follow that, the thing that tends, especially when it comes to conversations about weight, it's so, again, speaking about the difference between like something that is actually society's problem and an individual problem, weight is one of those things where we immediately are like, that's all you. Like we all have this sense of like, I should just be better than I should have more self-control. I should work out harder. I should be running four miles a day and then go to dance class and eat a cucumber and live my life. And, and, but like, like the, the thing that you're being told needs to change is theoretically something that is a hundred percent your responsibility, mm-hmm. not your dance teacher's responsibility to coach you and help you and teach you the anatomy of your body so that you can actually understand how to turn your feet out more mm-hmm. or how to stretch. Now, I technically didn't finish the quote from your blog. Mm-hmm. There's another part that you say, it wasn't until I grew older that I learned that there was never a fight to win. <laughs> Do you think you could maybe tell me a little bit more about this discovery that you you, you had? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I feel like it's one of those things that I discovered in bits and pieces and fits and starts over time. A lot of this thinking for me comes from Dr. Hillary McBride just as a reference for anyone listening, if you want to look into this more. But as I started understanding, even this probably comes from counseling school as well, like you start learning how the brain works and the body works and how experiences get stored in the body and all of this stuff. And I realized as I started learning just how much I had been trying to fight to master my body when my body has just been trying to help me because that's literally what your body is wired to do. And for one that we talk about our bodies, like they're separate things they, they literally are us mm-hmm. like we are embodied beings we we go through life experiencing life in our body and it is wired to protect you to make you feel safe which is exactly why your body went right into that freeze response when you're telling that story about this feeling of shame and all your classmates are knowing something and just this humiliation yeah. really that's your body saying we're we we're done like we we can't absorb this it's too much and so your body is wired to protect you and so realizing that all of the times i would cry or just hate myself and hate my body for not being able to you know withstand another beating on the dance floor and it's like my body was communicating to me like by the end of my dance career my feet were literally held together by tape and like literally 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 and that was kind of like a badge of honor in a way like like look how hard I've worked but but actually thinking about it it's like my body was communicating to me that it was too much Mm. and I probably danced longer than I should have because I wasn't ready to give it up which is fair but just realizing that yeah all of the times that were like why can't I run faster or further or why can't I you know I have this back pain or whatever. It's it's your body communicating to you mm. in a caring way. Like your body is telling you that something isn't okay or something needs to be tended to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was this kind of reframe for me of like the whole time I've been trying to master my body, like just do it Nike style, like power through. Yeah, I think it's actually so much more powerful for me to listen to my body and honor it and gently push it when it's able to, because we can push ourselves further. But I have to honor, like when I'm at the gym and I'm struggling under a weight, I have to check in with what my body's saying and say, can I do this squat or is this actually too much? And then I need to honor it and either push it or not. 
Yeah. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a difference between mastering your body for yourself and mastering mm -hmm. your body for someone else. Yeah. Or even as you say that, I think I almost prefer the word like partnership, mm -hmm. like partnering with my body as opposed to dominating it or letting it lead. It's a part of me that I get to be friends with that gets to lead me in lots of ways and that I also get to lead in turn. Like there is this kind of collaboration between us, even though we are one being, but we are also, I guess, the sense of parts. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a partnership rather than a, I'm the one in charge. Wow. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. No, I, something that's also coming up for me and it's a little bit of an aside, but the word canopsia is actually coming to mind. Mm -hmm. Do you know of this word? I, I, I want to just so I can feel really like smart, but no. That's okay. It's a, <laughs> it's a word that was coined by John Koenig, who is writing the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Okay. And essentially what the word means is it's the eerie forlorn feeling you get when you go to a place that was once full of life but is now mm. empty and abandoned. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, and what's kind of coming up for me is the idea of like, w what kind of noun is the body? Mm. Yeah. You know, is it, a, is it a person, place, or thing? Mm -hmm. And recently with the, uh, the traumatic event that's happened to me, I got to witness canopsia on a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. And the reason why canopsia is the best word that fills up this feeling or this experience mm -hmm. is because I have to see the body as a place, mm. you know, like the term human being. Mm -hmm. It turns out human is the adjective in that mm. term and being mm. is the noun. Yeah. And a being is just someone who's currently experiencing existence. Yeah. And when my, when my friend Ryan fell off the staircase, well, I was the last person he saw alive. Mm -hmm. And I was the first person on the scene to see him dead. Yeah. Oh. And I saw a smile on his face. Mm -hmm. I saw him full of life. And then the moment I see him on the ground, lifeless, I felt canopsia. And yeah, there is nothing like it when you see a human being. Yeah. Lacking their being. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like one of the most surreal, oh, like confusing experiences and in, in even for an experience like the one you're describing where it's so like, like you saw it happen. Mm -hmm. Like in one second you're alive and the next it's gone. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about that, like that emptiness, like there was once so much life there. Mm -hmm. And like, where did it just go? It's, yeah. That's, yeah, there's not words that go with that. I guess other than the one that you just shared, canopsia. Yes. Yeah. 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 I guess maybe just what I'm thinking about when telling that story is that it is literally seconds where your being can leave your body. Mm -hmm. And to not appreciate your being being in your body yeah. in the now is is more of a shame than anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Like how much of life have we actually not lived because we won't listen to our bodies or connect with them or embrace and as, as you talk it reminds me of and I think this was included in that um 
post that I wrote, but the John O'Donohue quote, where he was a, a former Irish priest and then a writer of just about Celtic spirituality. And he, he posited that because our soul is the part of us that is connected to eternity, that is beyond us, that kind of existed before we were here and then gone. Like this idea of like, just kind of etherealness, I guess. He, he posits that, that the soul actually isn't in the body, but that the, the body is actually held by the soul. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking, it reminded me of that, like, like your friend died. He's no longer an embodied being, but mm-hmm. that sense of like, yeah, his soul is still there somehow. somehow. Yeah. But just as you're talking, it just, yeah, made me think of that, like, yeah, to not actually be in our bodies and to not be connected means we're actually not connected to our souls and our, our full sense of life and vitality. Wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah, now I'm really starting to think about just kind of where I'm at mm-hmm. and kind of the uh, the effects that this traumatic event in my mm-hmm. past kind of rippled through. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot about relationships and sexuality. And mm-hmm. um, I've come to really learn that I display a lot of traits that of an asexual Hmm. i don't feel as though i'm worthy of a romantic partner of any Hmm. kind i don't want to take off my clothes Mm -hmm. and have a relationship in that way yeah and i think in the greatest sense my body dysmorphia is what gets in the way of me Mm -hmm. pursuing any of these things yeah i just am curious is there a relationship or mm-hmm. um, a connection between body dysmorphia and like romantic sexual relationships? Yeah, yeah. I mean, great question. From my understanding <laughs> of asexuality is that it's a sexual orientation and is therefore innate. So the sense of like just not having sexual desire and it's on a spectrum. So some people like might with the right person, but generally disinterested but then there is also the like sexual repression or sexual discomfort or just general maybe fear shame all of that stuff that can also come to play with it and I was actually reading one study that said that body dysmorphic disorder was correlated with like compulsive sexual behavior or just like kind of risky sexual behavior um Mm. so I thought that was interesting I don't actually know though there's probably more research to read but I would say that in terms of just our connection with our body and having body image issues and struggling with body dysmorphia I could see it very much having an impact on that area because because like especially yeah sexuality is one of the most embodied experiences that you can have and that's not even just sex like sexuality is so much more than sexual activity and even like researchers don't even have like a really clear like definition of sexuality because it's so like spiritual and like physical and like intangible and it has to do with like identity and attraction and pleasure and all of these things and it's kind of nebulous in a way but it is super super embodied and so if you struggle to be in your body or to love your body or you feel ashamed of your body it would make sense that then you're going to not find sexual connection with others enticing 
or romantic mm-hmm. attraction meaningful, especially because we do have these very narrow ideas of who gets to be attractive and who doesn't. And especially like men have this very narrow, like you got to be jacked, but not too jacked. Yeah. Unless you're like a bodybuilder dude, but then whatever, like, and you should be like a sexual, like wonder and just know exactly what to do and just be really like macho. Mm -hmm. And then, but also have some level of emotional awareness because women seem to like that these days. I don't know. It's just very like, it's just like a very high standard of like how you should be. Yeah, it's, um, it is incredibly confusing for me. I mean, especially having uh, realized I I do lean towards being gay and Mm -hmm. seeing someone that I'm attracted to. Mm -hmm. And then I look at myself and realize Mm -hmm. I am nothing like the person I'm attracted Uh, to. Yeah. It just creates this justification to why my body is not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why I should hate it and why mm-hmm. I should repress yeah. and why I should not yeah. act. Yeah. And as you say that, I'm having a thought that might be a little bit me putting on my therapist hat, but not because I'm not giving you therapy. But when you talk about the significant experience when you're 10 years old and you're shamed for your body in front of a bunch of people, mm-hmm. like, of course, the last thing you want to do now is share your body with another person or believe that it could be worthy of that because you you had an experience where achieving something such as a trophy Mm -hmm. was tied to your physical appearance and not that a relationship is an achievement but it is very much treated as something in our society yeah Um, and there is this sense of like like I remember the first time I had a boyfriend people were like congratulating me and I was like what did I win like (laughs) what i was so confused but like there is this i wonder if there's like even like a a link there of like i'm unworthy actually because i don't look you know 15 pounds lighter and hairless and whatever i don't know if that resonates with you but completely and utterly um thank you sorry it's no (laughs) no 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 need to be sorry it's uh it's just true it's just Mm -hmm. Yeah, nailed it. Mm-hmm. I think um, just the fact that you brought up the whole having a good body means getting a trophy. Mm-hmm. Growing up for me, at least. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Like my my desire to be a champion is directly correlated with how my body should look. Mm-hmm. And then my desire to be a champion also is connected to any type of romantic relationship. Yeah. Um, because... They, I don't deserve this trophy because I'm not, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like this horrible cycle that got like so implanted in your mind at such a young age that, that in order to receive, you have to look the certain way. And if you don't, you won't, or you're undeserving. And, mm-hmm. and even that is interesting to me because I'm like, where did we get this idea that we are, that love is something you deserve or don't deserve? Like, is love not something you just get to experience? And why why is it that we have to be a certain way or earn it somehow? And some people get to have it and other people don't. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just interesting to me that we have that narrative. Yeah. Wow. I think there is a huge correlation between thinking that success means we're lovable. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if I don't have enough successes, then I am unworthy of connection and love and belonging. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just wild how all of this is just led down led down this road, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. um it's it's been a lot of thoughts of just me thinking like, am I just a broken, messed up, mm -hmm. fucked up human being? Or is it okay that what happened to me has broken me and that I don't really have romantic desires? Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there a world, is there a space where that's okay? Yeah. And that I can still say thank you to Irish dance, but then also fuck you to Irish dance. And for both of those truths to be happening at the exact same time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Because the, the tension of that mm -hmm. really makes me feel more broken sometimes. And I really mm -hmm. feel as though I want this cure. Yeah. I want the cure to all of it. Yeah. But like you said, maybe there's never a, there's never been a fight to win in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even as you're talking, I'm just thinking like, I don't know, like, well, one, you're not broken and messed up. <laughs> like, like we all just have stuff and it, it wants to express itself at times or it makes things difficult and and so just for when you go in that place, mm -mm, uh, Luke, you are so wonderful. Um, but, but even as you're saying, like, is it just okay to, to not have romantic interests? Is that fine? And, and part of me, as you were saying, I was just like, is it, is it okay to not know? Like, is it okay to like, cause maybe it is a mixture of both things. It's a, it's a discomfort with your body or that, that body dysmorphia causing a bit of like romantic repression and fear coupled with maybe being asexual or you know are you asexual but then there's one person who will come along and that'll change and like is it is it okay to not know mm -hmm. i don't know i think i think that goes back into the uh, empowerment of labels mm -hmm. yeah and how labels are just things that we pour ourselves into and maybe another label comes around and I pour myself into that and it just mm -hmm. feels better. Yeah. But I can't, I can't know until I start pouring myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things that you don't, you know, kind of like when I think back to that original story I told of my first dance competition, like you don't know how good you are or you don't know until you are there and yeah. putting myself in a place of being judged I'm using our chance as an example here and kind of weird but like there's a vulnerability in that because you cannot place I mean to be fair in Irish dancing at your first dance competition everyone gets a medal anyway because they they believe in setting you off on a good start um yeah. but you know I could have I could have done poorly I could have broken my foot I could have freaked out and not danced I could whatever you put yourself in a place of vulnerability which is kind mm -hmm. of what self-discovery is because self-discovery mm. is actually saying, I don't know, but I'm willing to see what comes up. Mm. And sometimes what comes up is gross stuff we don't like. Sometimes stuff that comes up is meaningful and beautiful. Sometimes stuff that comes up is looking at, at a story of what happened to you when you were 10 and seeing it in a whole different lens and being like, oh my God, that wasn't okay. Yeah. But it is a it is the like surrendering to 
discovery. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. Well, with all that being said, I'm just curious, would you be down for just a, a little break mm -hmm. a little bit just to like yeah. take a minute? And um, when we come back, I was hoping to maybe talk a little bit about some of the media stigma that has yeah. been going around. Wonderful. And yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. half of my conversation with Alexandra Fuller. If you'd like to listen to the next half, um, tune in next week where Alexandra and I will be talking more about stigma, uh, the media's influence, and diving a bit more into Alexandra's theory about how it is society that has body dysmorphia. Maybe it's not us. I really deeply am so grateful for this conversation. It was so incredibly healing for me. And I hope that moving forward, maybe I can have a bit more love and compassion and self-acceptance when it comes to my body. And maybe I can recognize that what happened to me doesn't have to mean that I'm not worthy of love, even though it's been so ingrained in me. Ugh. And so something that I know that I like to do at the end of my my Irish dance story episodes is I like to turn the mirror back on to you, listener. And I like to ask you to, you know, feel free to reach out to me at Lucatronosaurus Rex on Instagram and let me know if anything that was said in this conversation was relatable at all. I think the reason why I'm encouraging some sort of conversation is because Maybe I just don't want to feel alone in this. I know I'm not alone, but I can really feel alone in this. So yeah, reach out, please. I'd love to hear from you. Links to Alexandra's Instagram and blog will be down in the show notes below. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. The Dear Brambling Podcast is a podcast dedicated to my little bramblings, to the next generation of humans growing up in the world, as well as to anyone who might be looking for a little more guidance in their life. It is hosted by me, Luke Benoit. Editing and sound design are by Cedar Picture and Sound, MB Productions, and Hideout Productions. The music that you're listening to is called Curiosity, and it's composed by Matthew Grazier at Grazier Music. The logo was designed by Misaki at Hostess Misaki on Twitch TV. And if you'd like to follow me on any social media, you can do so on Twitch as well as on Instagram at Lucatronosaurus Rex. 
And to anyone who is listening to the podcast this far in, I just want to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. I do, however, need to say that this podcast was brought to you for education and entertainment purposes and should not be used as a substitute for actual licensed coaching, counseling, or therapy. If you are experiencing some sort of pain in your life and you need some help, I definitely recommend shopping around for the right coach, counselor, or therapist that is right for you. With all that being said, I really do hope that you're doing something today to take care of yourself, and I do hope that you have a great rest of your day. Bye for now.